Welcome. My name is Yvonne Benninger-Rothschild. I'm the Executive Director of the EICC New York. This podcast is brought to you by the European American Chamber of Commerce, a platform where Europeans and Americans connect to do business. To produce this series, we have asked our members from across Europe and the United States to discuss current events and how they may affect transatlantic business activities. In addition to this recording, I invite you to listen to all of our podcasts. You can find them on our website at eaccny.com right slash podcasts. I hope you will enjoy the insights our members together with my team have put together. And I encourage you to subscribe to the EACC podcast series on your favorite podcast server and to rate and share them with your friends and colleagues. Welcome back to our Brexit Musings. My name is Paolo Frazzini Melendez. I manage member engagement at the EACCNY, and I will be your host for this series. With the increase in political noise, you and your business should not continue your wait on a possible finalized outcome of the EU-UK Brexit negotiations. Instead, your focus now must turn towards a more practical and commercial solutions that would mitigate any negative impacts of the upcoming change. It is clear that the uncertainties surrounding Brexit, coupled with the COVID-19 pandemic, has made preparing for the deadline of December 31st all the more important. Relevant actions must be taken, but what can companies still do in the days that remain? This Brexit Musings episode features Sally Jones, Ernst Young's Brexit and Trade Strategy Lead in the UK. She will define and take you through the 10 key Brexit domains and set out some of the operational actions each business that trades in or with the UK needs to take. Sally is joined by her colleague, Adam Frazier, Director of Customer Practice at EY. Thank you both for joining us. And with that, we will jump right in. So Sally, this is a really rapidly evolving area. What's the latest intel that you have from both the UK and Europe? So at the time of speaking, The UK has walked away from the Brexit negotiations with the EU and has said that talks will not resume until the EU fundamentally changes its position. Now, what a fundamental change of position actually looks like is somewhat up for debate. The EU has already made concessions on the nature of the talks and their intensity, and it's already made concessions around moving to analysed legal text. But whether that's far enough is impossible to say. Certainly, the UK's position is that without a fundamental shift in the EU position on fisheries and on the so-called level playing field provisions, then the UK will not come back to the table for more negotiations. Great. And you speak to a wide range of businesses across many geographies and sectors. What are the overall trends that you're seeing? Oh, good question. I think I would probably sum up it as three trends that we're seeing at the minute, which are the extent to which COVID has caused disruption, The fact that companies have often prepared very well across one, two or three of what we call the Brexit domains, but not all of them. And they are running out of time now to put in place mitigations for areas where they haven't prepared. So if I can drill down into each of those a little bit more. On COVID disruption, we ran a poll in end of September, about a month ago now. And in that poll, we asked businesses who'd prepared for Brexit to what extent COVID had caused disruption. And more than 70% of businesses said that COVID had either substantively or moderately disrupted their Brexit planning. Can you be more specific about the COVID disruption? We see it in four ways. It comes across as, firstly, Brexit people are often the same people who have the expertise to deal with COVID. And so Brexit committees have been repurposed or furloughed. We see stockpiles 
that were created in the run up to 31 January have been burnt through. They got burnt through in March or April when the UK's supply lines came under intense strain. The cash is tight and businesses don't have the capital, the working capital available to rebuild their stockpiles. And perhaps most fundamentally of all, the supply lines changed enormously as a result of COVID in March and April. So businesses that were getting their core ingredient from the Far East discovered that they could no longer get it, had to get their ingredients from elsewhere, but had never prepared for those alternative routes. And therefore, we've got this situation where companies had been ready for one set of facts and circumstances, but now have to deal with an alternative. So COVID has been a huge factor here. I think the second theme we're seeing is that for very sensible reasons, companies had focused their Brexit preparations on supply chains and on customs. And that's in large part, I think, because goods and the Irish border were getting the bulk of the attention over the past year. But the reality is we count 10 Brexit domains and those are only two of them. The the third Brexit domain and one where we do see some companies have done some preparations is around people, talent and mobility. But for the other seven Brexit domains, we really see things not really shaping up brilliantly. Which Brexit domains tend to be most overlooked? The the real pushes we see at the minute from clients, you know, the real areas where they realise they're struggling a bit are in IT systems and data, in commercial and pricing. And finally, in the area of regulatory and compliance. So just again, just picking up each of those briefly, IT systems and data, that's that's a massive issue, either in terms of systems architecture or in terms of restrictions on where that data can be housed in the future. And that that's a really hot topic at the minute, not just for EU UK data flows, but more generally in it as well, because of various legal cases which took place over the course of the summer. Then on commercial and pricing, it's really a, rec- a recognition that Companies have got a whole slew of extra costs coming their way and they don't know what to do with them. Do they absorb the hit to the price margin themselves? Do they try and push back on their suppliers? Do they try and pass on the increasing costs to their customers? And then on regulatory and compliance, this is in some way the biggest, because if a company can no longer meet its regulatory obligations in order to sell its product or service into the EU, then it can no longer lawfully trade. That's not just additional cost as with tariffs, for example, but is an absolute prohibition on being able to legally trade. And it can take quite a while to get the ducks in a row to be able to sort that legal structure out. And so those are the three areas where we see companies have underprepared and are looking for help now. I think the final point then is around running out of time. There is still time to to manage Brexit, but it might not be possible to preserve business as usual. So we're seeing companies move much more towards doing the minimum they need to do to keep trading, and they'll sort out business as usual after the event. Are you seeing any trends that are specific to US businesses? Yes, we are. So as a general rule of thumb, culturally, American businesses have been not enormously focused on Brexit because they see it as a, I suppose, really a local issue. And so a number of U.S. businesses that we've spoken to have said, actually, we're not going to worry that much about Brexit now because the U.K. is not a significant enough part of our footprint for us to worry. We will let the U.K. business stink or swim, depending on how Brexit pans out. So that's certainly one theme that we're seeing. Then there's a a second theme that we're seeing, which is around even when the UK is a significant part of a US business's Brexit footprint, the culture in the US can be one of just in time. And US businesses have often congratulated themselves that they didn't get Brexit ready in 
for all of the previous deadlines, 29 March of 2019, 31 October 2019, 31 January of 2020, didn't waste time and resource, but they're regretting it now a little bit because there are now a handful of days, 70 or so days at the time of recording this podcast that really makes it difficult to manage full mitigation. I'm particularly interested in that comment about running out of time. Can you give us some examples? I'm going to give you five examples that we're seeing in real life. The first is around warehousing. So we've got companies that are talking to us where they have been unable to secure sufficient warehousing space to build the size of stockpile that they would like to build. And there we're seeing some creative solutions around the fact that their offices are closed because of COVID. And therefore, they are using boardrooms and shop floors and factories that would otherwise be empty in order to hold stock that they might need as a result of Brexit disruption. We know that the Brexit disruption is going to be fairly intense, that the additional transit time for goods is going to be fairly significant, particularly on Eurotunnel between the UK and the EU. And so having a stockpile is a really sensible way of managing that. Where companies are not able to build warehousing capacity, even in their offices or empty car parks, then we're seeing them forward order. So they are deliberately bringing forward orders that would have happened in January into December in the hope that they can they can avoid really the first two weeks of January, which look most disrupted. So that that's response number one. Response number two we're seeing is companies being creative about what stock lines they're going to be holding. So, for example, one of the companies we're talking to is in the hospitality and leisure sector, agri-food. So they do a combination of takeaways, which are still permitted in the UK, and restaurant seating, which at the moment is still permitted, but may, may not be going forward for much longer. And on that, they are building the entirety of their winter menu around products which, in which the UK is self-sufficient. So, for example, apple crumble and custard with UK apples, British apples, rather than lemon meringue pie with Italian lemons. It's that kind of change to their menu which they're looking at. So being creative with stock is definitely something we're seeing. The third area I wanted to just highlight is data, data and licenses. So this is a slightly complicated area, bear with me. But at the moment, data can flow from the EU to the UK unrestricted, and there may be restrictions from 1 January. What those restrictions will be and how rigorously the EU will enforce them are still up for grabs. But we do know that some of the member states' information commissioners' offices require, in any case, a license before a company can move data from the EU to a third country. And we also know that information commissioners' offices are much more lenient towards businesses that have started that application process compared to ones that haven't. And so we're seeing a number of companies scramble to put in place at least applications for things, even if they know full well the license won't be granted in time, because it puts them in a better light should they ever be challenged. The fourth area I wanted to highlight is supplier support. So this is really about how robust a supply chain might be. And it doesn't have to be a good supply chain. It could be services as well. And we recognize that a number of businesses have really struggled with COVID and are under some degree of financial stress. If Brexit were to push them over the edge, how much support will a company give its suppliers to make sure they can keep trading? So, for example, would a company be willing to accelerate payment terms to its suppliers? If it normally pays on 60 day terms, would it be willing to do overnight payments to help out cash flow? Might it be willing to buy raw materials that are processed in a supplier's factory in return for a reduced fee 
so that the supplier doesn't have to shell out for those in the first instance. In some instances, even, would a company be willing to purchase a supplier in order to maintain supply if necessary? Those are the kind of questions that people are asking themselves and answering in advance of 30, uh, 31 December so they can respond rapidly if they need to. I think that the fifth and final thing I wanted to flag is contract terms. And there's a real issue brewing that is very fixable if you know about it, which is that some companies are writing to their customers and they're saying, basically, at the moment, you have a contract with us that means that we will supply to you in the EU. From 1 January, the UK is not in the EU anymore. We want some more money from you in order to continue supplying to the UK. If you know in advance that that kind of issue is coming, then you know in advance that you need to budget for it and you know in advance that you need to start conversations with your absolutely critical suppliers to ensure that you're not going to get a nasty surprise just around Christmas time. But that's a real trend. We're seeing it live in the market right now. And getting in front of that means that you won't have your Christmas holidays disturbed quite as disastrously as it might otherwise have been the case. And Paolo, I think that's us done. Thank you, Sally. That concludes this podcast episode with Sally Jones and Adam Fraser from Ernst & Young. Thank you very much for joining us in this series. And to our audience, we hope that you enjoy listening to our program. And stay tuned for our next podcast episode where we muse about Brexit. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from the European American Chamber of Commerce, New York. Please remember to subscribe and rate this episode and be sure to check out the complete list of recordings on our website at eaccny.com right smash podcasts. If you have any thoughts or comments about this series, we would love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to us at membership at eaccny.com to learn more about our work, how to get involved and how to join our transatlantic network.